Hello, and I want to welcome everyone on this Super Bowl weekend. When many of you are thinking about Super Bowl parties or enjoying the game and the commercials and the halftime, it's going to be awesome, and uh, I hope that really is a good time for you. We come to a passage today in our study through Luke's gospel that I believe ought to kind of perk up the ears of every true leader, because here's what I know about leadership. Every effective leader, no matter what realm they're in, he or she is going to experience criticism. It's just a common denominator with all leaders, wherever they are, all leaders are critiqued. It just comes with the territory. So we have to learn how to cope with that and be courageous enough to keep on leading. If you're a parent in the home and you dare to challenge your children, you've got to put up with temper tantrums and possibly poor attitudes and pouting. You've got to learn how to cope with that and work through it or else the children may be kind of ruling and running the household. If you're a teacher in a school system and you dare to challenge students to be better or go to another level, you not only have to put up with ridicule perhaps from the students, but sometimes even worse, parents putting pressure on you and challenging your high standard and expectations. Or perhaps you're in the business world and you want that business to be the best it can possibly be. And so you cast the vision and you let people know, this is our strategy, this is where we're going. But not everybody's going to be on board. And you're going to have some, some sad dogs spreading gloom, let me tell you. And they're going to critique you and critique your motivation and critique your methods but you've got to be courageous enough to persevere with that. And any preacher, by the way, that doesn't stand up and speak courageously about the important issues of the day is going to lose their moral authority over time. And if you're a political leader, and you don't lead out of a sense of principle and bring that to bear with all the pertinent issues, eventually you too lose respect from people and you become rather pitiful and ineffective. And it really is just an exercise in the bland leading the bland. All leaders need the courage to cope with criticism. Jesus said, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. In other words, if everybody's just speaking well of you all the time, then it's probably an indication that either you're compromising the truth or you're just cowardly caving in to peer pressure. A good leader knows you just can't please everyone and stand for truth at the same time. A grandfather lovingly put his grandson on the donkey and began to go into town. But he heard someone say, look at that selfish little boy making that old man walk. And so he himself got on the donkey and 
had his grandson walk beside. But he heard someone say, look at that mean, mean little boy making that, look at that mean old man making that little boy, that little child walk like that. And so then he got off the donkey and they decided they would both walk by the donkey side by side. And then they heard someone say, look at those two stupid people. They got a donkey and they aren't even using it. And so then they both got up and rode on the donkey, and they heard someone say, they're going to overburden that animal. They're going to break that donkey down. That is animal abuse right there. And so the last scene shows the grandfather and the grandson carrying the donkey (laughs) into town. And the moral of the story is, you just can't please people. And if you've been a leader very long, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody who feels led by God to lead from a grandparent to a general in the military must have the courage to cope with criticism and antagonist. We come to a passage today that's very interesting. Even though Jesus was the incomparable leader, he was the perfect model of servant leadership, guess what? He faced constant, brutal attacks from people who wanted to cut him down and discredit him. So as we walk through this passage today, especially if you're a leader, and that is so many of us, you have some kind of sphere of influence, I want you to be asking God as we walk through this, how does this apply to me? And I think it's some some points, it'll be very obvious what God wants us to take away. So let's jump in and get started. First, I want you to see that Jesus had the courage to celebrate when others were too rigid. Verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, Jesus, your disciples, go on eating and drinking. Now, there were a number of religious sects, S-E-C-T-S, within the Jewish faith. The Pharisees were one of them, and they were known as perhaps the strictest, most serious of all. And they had adopted fasting and prayer as one of their religious rituals. Now, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, if you want to read about this for yourself, God had stipulated that there was to be one national day of prayer and fasting, and that was to be the Day of Atonement. That's the only day. Now, there could be other days, but that would be voluntary if people wanted to participate. But through the years, it had changed. And there had been a lot of man-made rules about prayer and fasting. And so, if you were really devout and pious Pharisee or a serious person in the Jewish faith in this time, you would fast on Mondays and Thursdays from dawn to dusk. But not only that, you kind of make a big show of it, which is, again, against the original intent of fasting. Fasting was originally meant to be associated with grief or contrition before God, but but they would whiten their faces so that they would look gaunt and emaciated, and they would stoop their shoulders so that they'd look weak, so that people would go, wow, they're really spiritual. Look at them. They're fasting. Oh, how close to God they must be. 
And so all of these man-made rules had been put on top of the guidelines that God had given in in the Old Testament. And the bottom line is this. Religion in this day was all about not doing the things you really wanted to do and doing the things you really didn't want to do. In one word, religion was misery. Misery. And you know what? To some people, it's the same way today. The humorist Irma Bombeck uh, told about sitting in church one day and she saw a little a little child that turned around and began to smile at some of the people sitting behind her. And when her mother noticed, she said to her daughter in a stage voice, stop that grinning, you're in church. And gave her a swat on the bottom, said, now, that's better. And Bombeck went on to say that for millions of people, uh, going to church, it is like having, you go with this sort of face where you've just read the will of your rich aunt and realized that she left everything to the pet hamster. And that's about how joyful you feel when you go to church. And you gotta admit, for millions in America, religion is just a grind, isn't it? I mean, you go through the same boring rituals week after week, sit, kneel, stand, pray, the same prayers, the same liturgy, the same kind of stuff. And it's just kind of miserable. But when you do it, when you go through the misery, you feel like you've done your duty. And sadly, some people think that's what Christianity's all about. So here, when Jesus' disciples didn't look miserable, the Pharisees couldn't stand it. Because they thought religion is just miserable. And they weren't fasting and praying, and so they criticized them. But Jesus courageously responded by challenging them to celebrate his presence. Jesus answered, can you make the guest of the bridegroom fast while he's still with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Now, probably most or all of us here really enjoy weddings and the wonderful receptions that follow, right? It's a time of celebration and festivities and joy, and we're just so happy for the bride and groom. But let's say you go to a wedding reception and you are famished. You haven't eaten a bite all day. I mean, you're just, you're just dying to eat, have something to drink. And you go to this wedding reception and you look all around, there's no hors d'oeuvres. In fact, you, you wait and, and wait, and finally, the father of the bride stands up and said, says, you know, I know you're wondering where the food is. We, we thought that we'd make this a very different reception. Instead of eating and drinking and feasting today and celebrating, we're going to make this a time of prayer and fasting. So right now, I'd like for all of you to get in a circle, and let's pray for the bride and groom. Now, let me ask you a question. When you left that reception, would you say... That was nice, or would you say, wow, that was cheap? No, you go to a wedding because you want to celebrate. You want to eat and drink. It's a time to laugh and dance and rejoice. And Jesus is making the point, look, he, as the bridegroom here with his followers, this is a time when they're going to be celebrating and rejoicing. He said, now one day I'm going to be taken away from them. 
And he was referring to his crucifixion and his ascension ultimately to the right hand of the Father. But while he's present, his disciples weren't going to be somber and fasting. No, they were going to be celebrating. But after he was gone, then they would fast. So let's pause for a second here, friends, and let's understand that God wants more out of us than rigid traditions. He wants a joyous relationship. Debbie and I have a little bit of a, I guess you could call it a tradition. <laughs> we, we have this habit, I guess. It, it, it's something we've done all of our married life, 20-something years, and we say, I love you, when we go to bed and we're about to go to sleep, the last words we say are to each other, I love you. And it's, it's just this little ritual we have, I guess. And we say that. And it really is meaningful, I believe, to both of us. But would you agree with me, as wonderful as that little habit is, that ritual, that if that's all a marriage is, it's on shaky ground. No, we don't want our spouse just to say, I love you. We want him or her to show it. We want them to kiss us. We want them to really enjoy our presence, to really love us, and to demonstrate it in all kinds of wonderful ways. And if a marriage doesn't have that, if it just has the ritual, it is probably in trouble. Similarly, spiritual traditions are okay. Some of them are are great. They can remind us of spiritual truths. They can help lead us closer to God. We can go into a deeper relationship. But I want you to understand today, God wants more from us than rote prayers and automatic church attendance and the ritualistic writing out of a check. Now, don't get me wrong. Fasting and praying and tithing are wonderful spiritual disciplines. In fact, I would highly recommend them to you. I practice all of them. They're great. But God is looking for more than a ritual. He wants us. He wants our conversation. He wants us to feel his presence. He wants us to walk in step with his spirit. He wants an intimate relationship and a daily fellowship with us. Now let me ask you, is that true of you? Because you see, I, I, don't, I don't ever want to be guilty of being a pastor and having a bunch of people show up to church that think they're doing their duty. This is not about doing a duty. This is not about ritual and being somber and miserable. What we're promoting here, what we're sharing with you, what we're teaching about is a vibrant, daily, moment-by-moment, moment, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Big difference big difference. It's all the difference in the world. God wants our life to be in line with the liturgy. He wants our lives to back up what we say with our lips. So it's life service, not just lip service. He essentially said that through the prophet Amos centuries ago when he said, I hate, I despise your religious feast." Woo, that's pretty strong. God says through Amos, I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. Do you believe this? This is God speaking here through Amos. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Why did God say such strong things? Because they were committing spiritual adultery. Could that be us? Could we, could we actually be guilty at times of actually saying things to God in prayers and songs and liturgies, but our lives really don't back it up? Wow. That makes me pause and think. So we need to understand as people, and especially as leaders, that there will always be rigid people on the outside who think that this is all about just being rigid in our rituals, but what God is looking for is a daily relationship. He wants us. And when Jesus is present, let me tell you folks, religion is not about misery. Oh no. It's about joy and celebration and laughter and hope, even in a funeral of someone who really knows Christ because Jesus conquered death and that is the ultimate in leadership. But secondly, I want you to see that Jesus had courage to introduce change when others were inflexible. Now leaders, you better listen closely to this because every leader needs a grasp on when to introduce change and maybe when not. Beginning in verse 36, Jesus gives two parables, we're going to look at them both, that talk about the necessity of change. He told them this parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. That's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, you don't cut a big chunk of cloth out of a brand new garment sew it on an old one to patch it up, well, you've not only wrecked the new garment, but once you wash that old garment with the patch on it, the patch is going to shrink up, and it's just going to be a mess. It may even rip to shreds. He goes on, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. By the way, that last line there kind of is a head scratcher for many people. It's really, most scholars believe, just a statement about how difficult it is for people to embrace change. I don't, this is not scientific. But in anecdotally, most of the people I've ever talked to about change, at least, at least, friends, eight out of ten say, I don't really enjoy change. Eight out of ten. But Jesus is talking here about appropriate change. Now, what's all this wineskin stuff about? Well, let me try to explain quickly. In New Testament days, leather was more readily available than glass bottles. And even though wine certainly was stored in bottles occasionally, the more common way for wine to be kept was in, it's a little bit gross to us when we think about it, but leather bottles, if you will, animal skins that had been prepared for that purpose. But when you poured grape juice 
into old, brittle wineskins that had already been used. Listen, they've already been stretched to capacity. And so that, that juice begins to ferment, and the gases make it expand. It's going to burst open those old, brittle wineskins, and the wine will be lost, and the skins will be ruined. He said, no, you, you put new wine that has yet to ferment into new wineskins because those new wineskins have elasticity. Now, don't miss the point. Jesus is making the point that this new gospel he's bringing is not going to fit into the old, brittle, Old Testament ceremonial forms anymore. It's too powerful. And these people are going to have to be more flexible and expansive in their thinking in order to receive and contain this new message. Now, beginning in Luke 6, there's a story here that illustrates that point. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees ask, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, let's get a little background. The Jewish people had a law, and this was designed for the poor, that if a grain field was along a public pathway, the farmer was to actually, even at harvest time, leave a swath of grain there that was unharvested. And people could come by, just like these disciples were doing, and pluck some heads of grain and eat it, as long as they didn't put a sickle to it. You couldn't bring your sickle and begin to harvest. But as long as you were just doing it by hand, that's what you could do. It was allowable, and it was designed again for the poor to have something to eat. So Jesus' disciples here are not violating that law. Where the Pharisees are bent out of shape is that they happen to be doing this on the Sabbath day. Now, the Old Testament had said that you're to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy and on it, you're not to do any work. And there are a few regulations that God gave them about Sabbath keeping. But here's the deal. Through the centuries, there had been accretions and layers of man-made laws put around the law of God. And so the Pharisees had dozens and dozens, and let me read a few. You were not to catch a fish on the Sabbath. You were not to kill or clean an animal on the Sabbath. You were not to make war on the Sabbath. You were not to be intimate with your spouse on the Sabbath. You were not to draw water on the Sabbath. You couldn't even plan a journey. You were not to cook a meal on the Sabbath. Anybody who violated these rules and a host of others was subject to being stoned to death. So, by coming along on the Sabbath and plucking this grain and rubbing it in their hands... And then eating it, the disciples were guilty of making a meal and working on the Sabbath. You could eat food on the Sabbath, but it had to be food that had been prepared the day before. So the Pharisees go, look, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? I heard about a preacher who pastored a church that was really sensitive about what people did on the Lord's Day. And they were kind of persnickety about it. And so when the pastor got up that morning and started driving to church, he realized that the bridge was out. He couldn't get to church. But it was extremely cold, and the river was frozen over. So he thought, hey, I'll skate to church. He put on his skates. River's frozen over. He skated to church. But when some board members saw that, they were aghast. 
they had a service, a meeting after the service, and the preacher explained that, look, I did it because it was either skate to church or not get to church at all. And so they debated this dilemma, and finally, one man resolved the problem. He asked the preacher, well, did you enjoy it? And the preacher said, no. And so the board members were okay with that. Now, these Pharisees are about that inflexible. H.L. Mencken said that a Puritan is someone who has this uh, haunting fear that someone somewhere is having fun. Well, that's sort of like the Pharisees. Jesus courageously responded to this legalism about the Sabbath with, with a history lesson about the need for flexibility. Jesus answered them, have you, you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Now remember, David was their all-time hero. What Abraham Lincoln is to the United States citizenship, uh, King David is to the Israelites. And Jesus said to them, do you remember the story when David was fleeing from King Saul? You remember that story? And he was just famished, and his men were just starving. And he went into the tabernacle where this showbread was, this bread of the presence, these 12 loaves of bread that the priests put there fresh every week. And it represented the presence of God and how God was providing for his people and watching over his people. And even though only the priests were authorized to eat those at the end of the week, David took that bread and he and his men took those sacred loaves and ate them. And Jesus is saying, look, God did not condemn him for that action and you do not condemn him for that action, so why are you condemning me and my disciples? Jesus reasons with the Pharisees. If you don't find fault with David when he ate the sacred bread, and that's condemned in Holy Scripture, why do you find fault with my disciples for eating this grain on the Sabbath when that's just violating one of your man-made rules? And then Jesus makes what to them would have been an outlandish statement in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's going, I'm the one who created the Sabbath. I have the authority to do with it as I please. And it's time for you guys to lighten up in your treatment of the Sabbath day. It's time for some new wineskins and new ways of thinking. Now, leader, let me speak to your heart for just a moment. If you lead effectively, whether you're talking about a business, an educational institution, some sort of community organization, whatever it is, and this is certainly true in a local church, you are going to need to introduce some appropriate and in incremental changes over time. And if you don't do that, the organization is going to become moribund and begin to die. But I want you to know, introducing change is one of the hardest things a leader ever does. I heard of a pastor who was at a church that every week prayed the Lord's Prayer. That's a fine ritual. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But he sensed, he sensed that in this particular church where he was serving, 
that it had become this mindless exercise for people, that, that 99% of the people, apparently, through conversation, they just weren't even thinking of what they were saying. And so he, he decided to make that prayer time more meaningful. He decided he would, instead of the Lord's Prayer, one Sunday, he introduced a little change. He introduced a pastoral prayer, prayer followed by a time of personal prayer and reflection in the pew. Boy, it caused a ruckus. After the service, a couple walked out and said, Pastor, we'll never be back. We're so offended. They've taken prayer out of the schools, and now you're taking it out of the church. People struggle with change. If it's not what they're accustomed to, if it's not the way they were brought up. We've seen that occasionally at Grace. This church is almost 25 years old, and in the early days of grace, I, I did all the baptizing. I really did. Hundreds of people. We had so many people all through the years who've been baptized, but I did all the baptizing early on, and I'll never forget the first time that I kind of moved away from that, and we had other people begin to, to do baptisms, and I got critical letters about that. And I got people really bent out of shape saying, you can't do that. You're the pastor. You got to do the baptizing. And I would reason with them. I'd say, now, show me in scripture, please, where the senior pastor needs to do all the baptizing. Where does that come from? Why do you believe that? I'd love to see it. Where is it? And, of course, they couldn't show. In fact, you get from the New Testament that pretty much any believer is qualified and eligible to baptize any other new believer. But here's the deal. Again, if it's not what you've experienced, if it's not the way you grew up, you may struggle with it. We have a saying here at Grace that I hope you're familiar with. In essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty, but in all things, we have love. And if we can capture that mentality on the essentials of the faith, we're going to agree. On those areas of, you know, conviction where we can agree to disagree, we're going to have liberty with each other and a lot of grace, but in all things, we're going to have love. I've heard it said that a legalist is someone who believes that nothing should ever be done for the first time. And so leader, before we leave this, let me ask you, whatever your realm of leadership, what is God putting on your heart today that's a change you need to bring? And you know the time is now. What would that be? Can I tell you something? It takes guts to leave the ruts. It takes guts to leave those old ruts of the way it's always been done. We've never done it that way. It takes guts for you to leave that. But remember, methods are many. Principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do. And may God give you courage as you introduce change. Don't do it too fast. Do it incrementally. But any thriving organization, whatever it is, has to be changing if it's going to remain effective and successful. 
The third thing and final thing I want you to notice about Jesus in this passage is he had the courage to confront when others were threatening him. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So that tells us something, by the way, about their motive. They were literally looking for a reason. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. By the way, I'm reading Luke along with all the other Gospels and the parallel passages. Interesting. In the other synoptics, Matthew and Mark, this story appears, but guess what? There's a difference in Luke. The other synoptics record the man with the shriveled hand, but only in Luke do we discover it's his right hand that's shriveled. And I find that intriguing because as we've already seen a number of times, and as we will see again, Luke, the medical doctor, is always interested in those details about the body And so he tells us it's the man's right hand that was shriveled. Now notice, these Pharisees are now spying on Jesus. They resent him so much. They were carefully watching his every move. And by the way, that's another thing that leaders have to learn to cope with. When you start being effective, whatever endeavor, some people are going to resent that. They may be jealous. They may have some ulterior motive where they want to sort of sabotage your leadership or whatever, and they will begin to watch your every step and critique you along the way. I'll tell you, it's one of the greatest tasks of a godly leader to learn to respond kindly even when people seem to want to rip you to shreds. Have you found that to be true, leaders? Don't you just want to rip them back? Don't you want just want to return an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Don't you want to just give it back to them the way they're giving it to you? But no, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so it's one of the greatest challenges you'll ever have to smile in the face of your critics and to actually ask God, oh, this is huge, ask God to help you to really care for them and their well-being. It's one of the hardest tasks you'll ever have as a leader. Now, the Pharisees knew that Jesus' custom was to go to the synagogue. We've already seen that. That's what he always practiced on the Sabbath day. And some scholars believe they literally planted this man there with the shriveled hand. We don't know that for sure, but I doubt with their motives revealed here, I doubt that they were hoping this guy would get healed on the Sabbath. I think it's more likely they were hoping that Jesus might heal him so they could go, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath day? There's a law against physicians healing people on the Sabbath. Why are you doing this, Jesus? And they could have a beef with him over that. But Jesus courageously disregarded the consequences and confronted them openly. But Jesus knew, verse 8, what they were thinking, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. I'm intrigued by that. Jesus could have dealt with this privately afterward and healed him. But for some reason, he chose to do it in front of everyone. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, 
stretch out your hand. Isn't that intriguing? When you study the Gospels, you'll find that numerous times, I find this fascinating, Jesus asked people to participate in their healing. Have you ever noticed that? He said to a man who was crippled to do the very thing he could not do. He said, take your pallet up and walk and go home. Well, that's the very thing the man could not do. And yet, by the power of God, he could. And here, same thing. Stretch out that shriveled hand. That's the one thing he could not do. But by the power of God, he could. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. You know what? I believe he did it publicly. I think he did it to illustrate that caring for people is more important than keeping petty man-made rules. Now, I'm not talking here about God's rules. I'm talking about man-made guidelines and policies. And can I say to you, volunteers and leaders of grace, oh, I love you so much. Some of you have volunteered for years. Some of you are new to the volunteer force. I say to you at all of our campuses, you are the backbone of this church. But can I say to you, please remember that people come before man-made policies. On a few occasions, I've seen someone who didn't seem to be really disabled pull into a handicapped parking place out in the parking lot and just kind of get out and saunter in. I want to go read them the riot act. Please don't do that. Maybe you're tempted to go up and say, hey, idiot, Philistine, move it or we tow it. Which is it going to be? Because it's hard to be sympathetic with someone who would do that, right? But it might be better if you kindly smiled and said, sir, I'd love for you to be able to park your car there. But you know what? If you did, you'd be breaking a restriction, violating a restriction. How about someone here in the church park your vehicle for you? We've got some 14-year-olds inside who would love to get some driving experience. Yeah, they drive a little fast, a little reckless at times, but they'd be glad to park your vehicle for you. How about that? And if someone shows up late, don't read them the riot act as though they've committed a felony. Treat them kindly. And if, if someone comes to your small group and they're like the 13th person to show up, don't say, well, our pastors have told us that if a group gets beyond 8 to 12, it becomes ineffective, and you're number 13, so hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. No, no. Put people ahead of policies. Now, policies are important. We need them. We need those guidelines or it would be chaos. I understand that fully. I understand that. But just remember Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. These guidelines were originally created to help people, not to become a straitjacket or an albatross around people's necks. I think you get the point. The final verse here says, verse 11, but they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And you know what they ultimately did. He was ultimately crucified on an old rugged cross. And yet Jesus voluntarily, courageously, yes, even joyfully faced that torture for you and me. And he said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. That is living life with courage. 
That's what it means to be a real disciple. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for all that we learn as we read through Luke's gospel. I pray that these lessons would lodge in our hearts and souls and that they would make a difference in our life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.